Good morning, again. It's my pleasure to greet you in the name and the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you've been coming to Black Knoll for 50 or more years, or this is your first Sunday, we all come at the invitation of our Lord, and it's in his name that we gather. Let me invite you to fill out the friendship pad on the end of your pew. Uh, if you have any updated contact information, want to leave the office a note, that's a good place to put it. We're on the third week of a four-week series on Romans chapter 12. We've stepped away from the Gospel of Mark to think about what it means to be the church, not to give every answer, but to think together about what exactly we're doing when we gather on Sunday morning. So our text this morning is Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 9. Let's listen again to the word of the Lord. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to go ahead and say something controversial, and I know some of you will disagree with it. I'm happy to talk afterwards about how I've been short-sighted or even wrong, but as your pastor, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that the the great British baking show will not change your life. (laughs) Or at least, after more than 10 seasons, it hasn't changed mine. This reality baking show was the most popular television of the pandemic year, not because it promises to change your life, but perhaps because it doesn't even try. Sure, now I could tell you the difference between an Italian meringue and a Swiss meringue, but I haven't tried to make one. I've enjoyed the scenery on the beautiful grounds where the show is filmed, but I couldn't tell you where exactly they are. In order to be a success, the show doesn't need to change you, just to entertain you. All it needs to do is distract you for 45 minutes from your day-to-day concerns, perhaps even offer a bit of comfort. At the end of the day, 
post Paul Hollywood doesn't care what kind of person you are or who, who his viewers become. And he doesn't need to. But the Apostle Paul does care. The message of the gospel is not meant to simply occupy or entertain. The message of the gospel wants to transform you. Now, of course, it is true that church can be reduced to, well, nothing more than a show. You can get all dressed up on Sunday. We can put on our best performance. For a morning, we can distract you from the cares of life out in the world. We can preach a gospel of existential comfort that does not make any demands. And you can go home a little lighter and leave your money in the plate. Church can be reduced to a show, to entertainment, good or bad. But that's so much less than what the gospel promises. Jesus came and died and rose not to comfort or entertain us, but to remake us into a new humanity. With a Palestinian carpenter who was nailed to the tree, God created a new kind of human. On the cross, God acknowledged the depth of distortion that we so rage against and yet don't even grasp. Human wickedness that seems to be written into the system, God acknowledged this on the cross and said, no more. And on the cross, God acknowledged the goodness of this world that he had made, the glimmers of beauty and truth that simply could not be distinguished. And on the cross, God said, there must be more. And so he sent his son into the world to be the second Adam, to bring about new creation in the midst of the old, this is the story that Paul is telling in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And with the death of Jesus, sin's reign of terror ended. And with his resurrection, new humanity came into being. And with his ascension, God left behind a sign, a foretaste of what God will do with this old world. And do you know what that sign and foretaste is? The church. After 11 chapters of unfolding the story of what has been true since the creation of the world and what God has already done about it, Paul turns to us. He turns from indicatives, Statements about what God has done, God has sent his son, God's son has died, to imperatives, commands about what we are to do as God's people. Our text this morning, as, it's, as we have it, is translated as, well, a list of commands, isn't it? We find them here not because we need to earn God's love by doing them, but because we just would not know what love is. We wouldn't know the love of God for us in Christ. We wouldn't know what love for one another looks like unless someone told us. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. Love is the hallmark of this new humanity. But we need someone to show us, to point out the way of love marked out by Jesus Christ. So that's what Paul does. That's where we begin. Love must be sincere or unhypocritical. What does sincere, true love look like? Well, love hates what is evil and clings to what is good. We are to oppose whatever taints our common life, whatever tempts us as individuals, and we're to hold fast, insist on what is good. This is different than tolerance. This is different than inclusion. Friends, love involves discernment of what is evil and what is good. Be devoted to one another, Paul says. Devotion. Love entails commitment, care. Honor one another above yourselves. Love frees us to look outside of ourselves and attend to the person in front of us. Because of love, we can delight in giving the best away to someone else. Where does this love come from? Well, no offense, but it does not spontaneously arise from the winsomeness of you all. Not from our natural ease of connection even. Love for one another results from this zeal for the Lord that Paul encourages us towards. Our commitment to serve him by bearing with one another. Love equips us for whatever comes our way in life. We can rejoice together in hope, in the hope that we have in Christ. And that's what we do every Sunday when we gather for worship. We can be patient in affliction, in the affliction that will surely come. Because we are steadied, steadied by the love of God and the care of his people. We can be faithful in prayer, persisting in our pursuit of God through the strength of our common bond, the aid of the zeal of one another. Not every Christian has the gift of prophecy, teaching, leading, encouraging, but every Christian is called to love. But as you well know, if you've ever stayed in a dating relationship a little too long, sincere love is not something you can manufacture. Love is a gift. The love of God for us is a gift, but God also gives us love for one another. The Holy Spirit pours out something into our hearts which was present maybe only in an occasional flicker before. But now, the spirit of the risen Christ bonds those who were once strangers and enemies into a new family held together by God's self-giving, sacrificial love. If you read through the letters of the Apostle Paul, then both his affection for the church and his sacrifice for the church will be evident. 
If you keep reading, it will also be evident that Paul had great struggles with members of the church, didn't he? He knew plenty of strife within the household of God. Those who cursed and persecuted Paul were often as not part of God's people, theological opponents, angered church members, and yet Paul did not give up on this hope that God would do no less than a miracle in the midst of this groaning world, that he would pour out on this unlikely collection of people love, both for God and for one another. Friends, let us hold fast to this hope as well. After a difficult and destabilizing 18 months of retirements, pandemic, the reverberations of political and racial tensions, we could decide to just lower our expectations a little bit as we tentatively watch who comes back to church. We could settle for some of love's counterfeits, civility and politeness. How are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you? Oh, good. Good to see you. You look so nice. Or tolerance, ironic self-protection. Or, Blacknall, we could recommit ourselves to the way of love that Paul outlines here. What would it take? As we linger for a moment with each of the instructions that Paul gives, consider the following questions. What place does each of these practices have in our common life? What structures facilitate these actions as a congregation? What examples encourage us in these practices as individuals and households? What can we celebrate? Where do we need to grow? First, share with the Lord's people in need. This was a hallmark of the early church. Bishops were known as lovers of the poor. The fourth century pagan emperor Julian the Apostate bemoaned that the Galileans, the Christians, support our poor, that is the pagans, in addition to their own. As a church, we've made financial and volunteer commitments to many organizations that provide relief for the poor, like food banks, families moving forward. We've committed to examining causes of poverty and learning about reform through organizations like Durham Can. The deacons manage something called the Love Fund to provide charitable assistance to members and friends. These are structures that facilitate sharing resources with the saints in need. But how might this be a hallmark of each household, a willingness both to give and to receive aid in the name of Christ. Friends, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Next, practice hospitality. Now, I'll admit that for me, the word hospitality comes with a bit of baggage. I think of women frantically tidying to impress their guests, an elaborate show of domestic competence that comes at the price of barking at family members and true attention to the other. Perhaps it will be helpful to you 
as it is to me to remember that when Paul says practice hospitality, he means welcome the stranger. That doesn't require a large or beautiful home or even advance notice. But a readiness, welcoming the stranger involves, well, a readiness to see in an unfamiliar face the image of Jesus Christ. That begins for us right now, this morning when we're together, welcoming one another as visitors or strangers. Where in our life together does the stranger represent a threat? And how might we be reoriented to welcome in the name of Christ? Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Dave will talk more about this next week as the end of chapter 12 focuses on living with enemies. I will just say that Paul presumes there will be those who curse you. And as often as not, those people will be part of the body of Christ. I think that's his primary focus here. Not necessarily the persecutions of the church by external individuals or authorities. So who in your life opposes your agenda? They could be sitting next to you right now. What does it mean to bless them, to want good for them, even in the midst of disagreement? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. One of the reasons that we open the floor to the congregation to make prayer requests is that we want to have the opportunity to rejoice and mourn together for you to invite us to share in your joys and sorrows. Often we are both rejoicing together and mourning together on the same morning, in the same prayer. We take one another meals, not just to provide food, but to share in sorrow and joy. But there are some joys and some sorrows that are, well, easier to share, aren't there? Some joys and some sorrows that are easier to enter into. We know how to celebrate a marriage, the birth of a child. We know how to mourn the loss of a parent, and that's a good thing. But there are other difficult joys that we are invited, and difficult sorrows that we are invited into. As we grow up in Christ, we are called to share in the joys of others that we would perhaps be tempted to envy, and we are called to enter into the sorrows of others that we would perhaps be tempted to flee from because they, well, scare us or overwhelm us. My own understanding of what it means to follow Christ has been stretched most by On the one hand, a friend who grieved with me her inability to have children and yet was present at the birth of my children, sharing in my joy. I still can't understand it. And those friends, on the other hand, who have just let me in and let me walk walk alongside them in hardship or illness that just was not going to get better. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
Mourn with those who mourn. Where are we being invited to share in joys and sorrows that stretch us in the name of Christ? Finally, be willing to associate with people of low position. We're back to the temptation that Paul named in our text last week to think of ourselves more highly than we ought for all the reasons that we've already named. Paul simply assumes that Christians will encounter those who are needy, who need money, who need shelter, those who curse us, those who need comfort. He simply assumes that as a part of our Christian life, we will run across these people. And yet, most of my life brings me into contact with people who have great potential and gifts, who are going somewhere, who have options. And when I do encounter this other sort of person, whether it's here in the hallway of Black Knoll or out there on the street, I admit that I feel flummoxed. I feel like I'm wasting my time and could be using it more efficiently when I encounter someone with needs, especially with needs that are greater or simply other than what I can meet. As a young adult, I worked with youth in an urban neighborhood and I had no idea how to help these kids. For the longest time, people would say, doesn't it just make you feel good to work with them? And I would say, no, no, it doesn't. Because for several years, there was a girl named Essie who I was charged to be a buddy with. And whenever I would sit down with her, she would look at me as kindly as she could and say, I don't like you, <laughs> and get up and walk away. <laughs> There were, I could, there were a million reasons I could have been too busy and upwardly mobile to no longer have time for Essie. Her mom and dad weren't friends with my mom and dad or part of the same church or actually even still alive. But I was a part of a church, a congregation, who saw as a part of our mission walking with and not away from those who were in need. Friends, as followers of not just any Lord, but a crucified Lord, these are our people. The lowly in this world, lowly for whatever reason, are our brothers and sisters and even our friends. How do we and how can we order our lives to walk with and not away from the lowly? I don't know why you came here this morning, and I don't know if you think it's been a particularly good or bad show so far. What I do know is that for many years, I came to church because I had to with my family, because I hoped to meet someone, a boy, and because honestly, I was just happy to stare at the back of Tread Thompson's head, my longtime childhood crush. But God and his mercy gave me more than I was coming for. Through the gospel, God would make the church, make us the body of Jesus Christ, the temple of the living God and the new humanity, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. So what do you say, Blacknell? 
Are you ready to be surprised by what the Spirit of God might do in a broken church, in a broken world? Or do you just want to go home and watch TV? Let's pray together. Lord, we confess this feels too much for us. We either think we've got it down and we know how to do it, or we can't even begin to imagine how you might inflame this kind of love among us. Would you minister together to us now by your Holy Spirit? Lord, in your mercy, pour out your gifts on us, this little gathering of your people. And make among us a sign of your new creation brought about by Jesus Christ. We would only dare or ask to ask this, dare to imagine or ask this in his name. Amen. It's not always the case, but often, by the time we get here on Sunday morning, our love for one another is a little, well, threadbare. Perhaps it's strained by email communication and all that's lacking there, or pulled by disappointment in relationship, or simply faded with disuse. Not always, but often by the time we get here on Sunday morning, our love for one another feels, well, thin. But when we come to this table, we are given a gift, a dose of that love that we cannot manufacture. We, this broken body of Christ are put back together. We are remembered when we feast on the body and blood of our Lord, this one bread and this one cup and this one love which has gathered us and will sustain us. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and he said to his disciples, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, poured out in my blood for you and for many. And friends, we are some of the many. It's for the forgiveness of sins. All of you drink it. And whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, 
We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power, God of might, heaven and earth are yours, but you have come alongside the lowly. You have given us your very body and blood that we might be made new into the image of Christ our Lord. Lord, would you once again have mercy upon us here at this table? Would you take these common elements and by your Holy Spirit feed us on your life, make them to be for us your body and blood? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.